0: Hello, Sid Roth here. I'm interviewing John Bevere with something more. And I'll tell you something. Every time you want to listen to the teaching of a five-fold teacher like John Bevere, I mean, he's had the best-selling book, uh, Bait of Satan. Most of you have read that. But as far as I'm concerned, his brand-new book, which is literally just off the press, Good or God?, is, in my opinion, the most important book that he has ever written. Now, John, uh, good or God? That's an interesting statement. I mean, isn't everyone inherently good? That's what people say on TV.
1: Well, Sid, first of all, it's great to be back with you. I sure, Lisa and I, we sure love and value and appreciate what you do for the body of Christ. Thank you. Good or God? Yeah, it's an interesting title, and it's meant to get the attention because we— just assume that we're born with the inherent knowledge of what's good and evil. I mean, we were born. We root for the the good guys in the movies. It, you know, we love it when it goes right down to the end. It looks like they're going to lose, and then suddenly they come through. I, 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 these- I have a
0: true confession. I still love the old-time cowboy movies, and I root for the hero. <laughs> uh, so you just describe me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. And then if you look at modern times, I mean, the last 10 years, I'm saying you look at all the programs that have really, really got people's attention. It's the programs that focus in on the good of humanity. I mean, we look at the makeovers, first of all, people with terrible houses, never could do something. And people would come in and people's hearts were warm seeing them fix up the house and then surprise the people. Then we had, you know, The Voice and we had American Idol where people were showcasing people's abilities and God-given talents and you know, bringing people that would never have a chance to have their, that, that voice showcased, to have that chance. And so we celebrate, as a society, this good. Right. But the question I have to ask, and I really believe the Holy Spirit put this to me, is if good is so obvious, why does the book of Hebrews tell us that we have to have discernment to recognize the difference between good and evil? Why does Solomon... Cry out to God and ask God to give him a heart that can discern between good and evil. So the question we have is: Good is apparent and obvious as we think it is. And if you look at the rich young ruler, he came running to Jesus and he said, "Good teacher." And Jesus listened and says, hey, what do you call me good for? Nobody's good but God." <laughs> now, was Jesus saying that he wasn't good? Absolutely not. What Jesus was saying to this man, if you have a different standard of good than God's good. And the question I have to ask is, how would Jesus respond to each of us? And I believe I got a glimpse into that, Sid, several years ago, back in the late 90s. I was traveling to Sweden to speak to 6,000 leaders over there in a conference. And I remember when my plane landed, I remember my driver picked me up in Stockholm, and he said to me, this happened last night while you were on the plane. So I need to be the first to tell you. But he told me about a world famous celebrity, a woman that was dearly loved by all the free world. She was killed in an automobile accident that night. And I remember I was shocked. I was horrified because she and her husband got married about the same time Lisa and I did. And Lisa would buy every magazine that she was on the cover. And I have to admit, and I'm being a bit vulnerable here. But I was a fan, because not only did Lisa read those articles, I read those articles, and I looked at all the pictures. I was a huge fan of this woman. And so when this man told me that, I remember going back to my hotel room, throwing my suitcase on the floor, turning the TV on, and everything was in Swedish until I got to CNN and BBC. And I started watching. And I sat at the edge of my bed in the hotel room, watching people gathered around gates, weeping. People gathered around national monuments in this woman's country just weeping. She was so loved. And literally, said, for two hours, I sat at the edge of my bed in shock. I found myself angry, angry at the paparazzis who were kind of mm-hmm. responsible for her death. And I was just, I was upset. And I remember it was like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I thought, you know, i got to get ready. i got to get in prayer for tonight's conference meeting because I was speaking that night to 6,000 people. And I remember I turned off the TV, and I'd been grieving ever since I got the news about her death and grieving the whole time. But yet in my grieving, I felt like I was in error. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but I just felt like something was wrong.
0: No, I can understand that.
1: Thank you. I remember getting down on the edge of the bed, and I literally knelt down on this prayer. And I said, God, I don't understand it. I'm grieving for this woman, but yet I feel like I'm in error. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clear. I mean, this is one of those times that you can almost count on two hands how many times you've heard this clear. He said, read Revelations 18. And I went over to Revelations 18, and I started reading. And when I got down to the seventh verse, my I, I jumped out of, out of my seat. Because I started reading, in the measure that she glorified herself, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. In the measure that she lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. Strong is the Lord that judges her, and her judgment shall come one, in one day. And the kings of this earth and the merchants will mourn at the, at the Lord's judgment on her. Now, I am not saying that these scriptures were written historically about this woman. However, what God was using is these scriptures to get my attention on, what, on the difference between good and God. And I remember in that hotel room, it was like when I read those verses, I felt like a, a cold bucket of ice water got thrown into my face. And I was angry. Now, I mean, I was literally, and if I really got to be honest, I was angry. God, how could you even imply that these verses of Scripture would refer to this woman? And I said, but because God, she, she has done so much for humanity. She's helped orphans. She's helped landmine victims. She's reached out to the helpless. And then I heard the Lord say this on the inside of me so clear She's also flaunted her adultery to the entire world and bragged about it. It's, obvious who, you're, about it's
0: obvious who you're speaking about, and everyone saw it on the news, saw her on the yacht, uh, you, know, you know, just flaunting this.
1: And then he said she's openly rebelled against the House that she submitted herself to. And, I, and then I just yelled. I yelled in that hotel room. Said, I said, but God, all the good she's done. And I'll never, ever in my entire life, because my whole life was about to change in that hotel room, never forget what God's reply was to me. Sid, this is what he said. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve was drawn to. It was the good side she was drawn to. And I remember, like, just sitting there in shock going, oh, my, my. And I flew in my Bible over to Genesis chapter 3. And I read, when the woman saw the tree was good, that it was pleasant, and that it was desirable to make her wise, she partook and ate. And I remember looking at that in shock, and God said, son, there is a good that is very rebellious to me. It is not submitted to me. And all of a sudden, Sid, I realized how Jesus said the church, even if possible, excuse me, he said, if, even if possible, the elect are going to be able to be deceived in the final days. Why is that? Because Isaiah said in the final days, it's going to come to the place where what is good is called evil and what's evil is called good. It's going to get so distorted. And so I realized that the man of lawlessness that the Bible talks about that's coming is going to be an amazingly good man, but he's going to be perfectly rebellious to God. And so this opened up now all of these areas that the Holy Spirit began opening up to me, on how the church is sinking back in to a place where we're identifying what is good to be God, what the world calls good. And so that's the real purpose for this book, is to help people open up again their discernment so they can be like Solomon. And it applies in all areas of life, not just in our 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 church going or in what we teach in the Bible, it applies to every area of life because there are so many people that are settling for good and missing out on God's best for their life. And that's the purpose
0: for this book. Uh, How serious is this in your understanding of the end times that people recognize the difference between good and God? Because frankly, I watch secular TV and I don't see a difference. And I watch frankly, a lot of Christian TV, and I don't see the difference. How important is this? How critical is this?
1: Well, you know, Amy Simone McPherson gave a prophetic word back in the days of Angelus Temple, and she said, I see the people of God in the last days with their hands up and worshiping God, and I see the wicked and the righteous worshiping God together. In other words, The book of Malachi tells us right before Jesus' second coming, we would not be able to discern between the good, between the righteous and the wicked. Because he makes a statement in Malachi chapter 4, then you will again discern between those who love me and those who don't, between the righteous and the wicked. So in other words, what's going to happen is there's going to be such a blur, the lines are going to be so blurred, that you will not truly be able to discern what is of God and what isn't. So how critical do I believe this is? If Jesus says to us that even the elect are going to be deceived, if you look at all the apostles' writings of the days we're living in, deception is huge. Paul writes about it. Peter writes about it. James writes about it. Jesus warns about it. I think that we are living in those days. I don't think it. I know it that we are living in those days right before Jesus' second coming. And there is such a burden in my heart to help people to realize, to get their compass re-pointed to north, to get themselves, their hearts recalibrated. You know, that's what the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, son, this message is a recalibration message. If I have an instrument and that instrument's calibration is off, then what it measures is going to tell me that it's a certain measurement, and I'm going to believe it's a certain measurement, but really it's not a certain measurement. And if you're dealing with critical mass, then all of a sudden now you're making decisions off of faulty information. And right now we have a situation where there needs to be a recalibration in believer's heart, my heart, because God exposed that to me in that hotel room. I realized, oh my goodness, I'm a minister. I've studied the Bible. I've gone to Bible school. I've been praying in the Spirit for years, yet I can't tell the difference between good and evil, and it took the Holy Spirit to expose how wrong I was. There was a genuine concern, not only for my life, but for the lives of so many in the body of Christ.
0: Well, this begs the question, because every page of this brand new book is life- Changing, and I think it's more critical now than ever in history because we're at the wrap-up. We're in the last, the last days, and anything the devil can do to deceive, he's going to really do it now because he knows his time is running out. Uh, but uh, you have a section in the book, and I, I was not aware of this. Uh, but according to my notes, uh, Jesus in the New Testament is called Savior thirty-six times and called Lord. 7,800 times. Comment on that.
1: Okay, the word Savior appears in the entire Bible, as you said, 36 times. The word Lord appears over 7,800 times. The Bible never says that thou shalt confess the Savior Jesus, you shall be saved. It says that thou shalt confess the Lord Jesus. Lord speaks of the title. Savior speaks of what he did for us, his work that he did for us. Let me give you an example. I've been married to Lisa for 33 years. She's an amazing chef. I mean, that woman can cook, flat-out cook. She's a good Sicilian girl. And so several times over the past 33 years, I referred to her as my little gourmet chef. But thousands of times over the past 33 years, I have referred to her as my wife because wife speaks of the position she holds with me. Chef speaks of something, a benefit that I received from that position. I mean, Lisa, when we were dating on my birthday, made me an amazing meal. That didn't make her my wife. That didn't give me a covenant relationship with her. The Bible does not say, if thou shalt confess the Savior Jesus, you will be saved. It says, if you should confess the Lord Jesus. Jesus then turns around and says, why do you call me Lord? Give me the title of Lord, yet you don't do what I say. And the example that I give in the book, Is this, if you you have a young girl and a young guy dating, they fall in love, so the guy creates the special moment. He's so excited. He gets down on one knee, he proposes to her. Will you marry me? She screams and says, yes, 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 I'll marry you. This is the happiest day of my life. And they embrace and they hug and she says, we're going to have such a great marriage. I'm going to, I'm an interior designer. I, you know, as you know, that I have my training in, in university for that. I'm going to make you the most beautiful house. I will have the kids bathe, We will have great sex together. And then she looks in and she says and, and of course, you know, I, I will need to see my other boyfriends periodically. <laughs> and I looks at her and goes, what? She goes, well you don't expect me to be a one-man woman. I mean, I'm going to need to see my other boyfriends periodically. And He goes, that won't work. And she goes, come on. Are you serious? And she said, all right, I love you so much. Why don't we do this? Why don't you just give me one day a year I can jump a bed with my old boyfriend? And the guy goes, that's not going to work. And she goes, come on. Are you serious? I mean, we will have great times together. We're in love with each other. And she says, okay, what about 300 300- to 64 days and 20 hours. Just give me four hours I can have one of playing with my old boyfriend. He goes, no. And she goes, how about 20 minutes a year? And he goes, no. He says, in fact, give me the ring back. We're done. Now, why wouldn't that guy marry her? Because she hasn't given her entire heart to him. She still has a place in her heart reserved for those other boyfriends. Well, we would never marry someone like that. What makes us think Jesus is coming back for a bride that's the same? It says, just give me a little bit of the world. Let me live the way I want, the way the world is motivated, living for self, self, self.
0: So It's like Frank Sinatra. I want to do it my way.
1: <laughs> right. I want it my way. But yet, what, 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 what the Bible clearly shows is that friendship— And and, and this isn't my quote. This is an exact quote from Scripture in the New Testament. The Christian who is seeking out a relationship with the world is called an adulterer. Why? Because when you have a covenant relationship, you don't violate that covenant relationship to establish a relationship with somebody else. In other words, I'm married to Lisa. She is my covenant wife. I'm not going to violate that covenant and start flirting with another woman because she's got a great personality and is beautiful. I'm not going to do that. I made my decision. When Lisa Bevere walked down that aisle, she made the decision and I made the decision. She she was basically walking down that aisle saying goodbye to every single man in the human race, except for me. And you know what? She's lived faithful to that. She used to flirt with guys. She would date guys. I mean, she told me she had basically, you know, three guys show up at her sorority house at one time. This is before she was saved on one night. I mean, that's how much she played with other guys. But yet when she got married to me, she was completely faithful. God, she had had become a believer. Her life was completely given, and she had given herself completely to God, and then she gave herself completely to me as a husband, to Jesus as her Lord, to me as her husband. And so if we just teach Jesus as Savior, and this is something we, we can get people to pray a prayer a lot easier, than if you tell somebody, well, you've got to forsake the sin that you love. So, so what, I'm, you hearing you, what,
0: what I'm hearing you say is there's a lot of false salvations and people are going to be shocked when they get to heaven. I'm so glad that you teach about the full, and I emphasise emphasis on the word full understanding of grace. Well, I want to talk about that when we come back, uh, but I want to get this brand new book into your hands as soon as possible, Good or God, Six Sessions of Teaching on uh, CD and DVD by John Bevere on this same subject. Uh, I want John to mentor you in, I believe, the most essential end-time teaching any believer could have uh, I'm going to quote John here, he says, it's not a self-help by changing behavior book, but will empower you to engage with God that will change every aspect of your life. It's really the secret of intimacy. It's how to discern what is God for your life versus good in every possible area, your job, your relationships, your ministry, every area and how to be empowered to live this holy life. One of the benefits of this book is you will fine-tune your discernment for the last days. So we have the brand-new book, the six sessions, DVDs and CDs, and a special bonus we're going to include. John, after being a believer, was addicted to pornography And he found the supernatural way to be set free. And I want to include this as a bonus. Uh, We're making it available, everything I've mentioned, for an investment of $74. I say investment because we are reaching Jewish people in unprecedented numbers. And he who wins souls is wise. Be right back for the full understanding of grace call our order-only line, one eight hundred four four seven twenty six ninety seven one eight hundred four four seven two six nine seven. 447 2697 447 2697 Hello, Sid Roth here with John Bevere with something more. Uh, now, John, in 2009, uh, there was a survey of thousands and thousands of Christians about the true meaning of grace. Uh, what did they find out?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting. Um, over 5,000 Christians were polled, and these are born again, Bible believing, Sunday morning church attending believers. And the question was asked give three or more one word descriptions or definitions of, of grace, of the grace of God, what you think of, what comes to mind when you hear it. The overwhelming response was salvation. Second one was forgiveness of sins. Third one was a free gift. And fourth one was the love of God. And I'm so glad. Americans understand that we were saved by grace, only by grace. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. And by the grace of God, our sins are forgiven. I'm so thankful for that. The tragedy of this survey was that 2%, you heard what I said, 2%, the actual figure was 1.9% of those that were polled said that grace was God's empowerment. Yet that is exactly How God defines His grace. Now, if you don't, wait a second,
0: John, if you don't talk about sin, then you don't even need empowerment. (laughs) I think that's where the basics of problems are.
1: That's correct. But, you know, if you look at the way God defines grace, it's so clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, he said to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power works best in your weakness, weakness meaning your human inability. So, in other words, God defines his grace as his power. If you look at Peter, he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, grace be multiplied to you as his divine power. So Peter refers to the grace of God as his divine power. Yet only 2% of the American Christians know that. Now the tragedy of this is Sid, here's where it comes in. Grace is the empowerment that gives us the ability to live beyond our natural ability. So before I was saved, I did not have the ability to resist pornography, resist lust, resist a lot of things that displeased God. After I got saved, I now have the empowerment. However, here's the problem. The problem is this. You can't have anything from God unless you believe. I mean, we know that to be true, right?
0: Without faith, you can't please God.
1: Right. I mean, I mean, the whole world is saved. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, yet only the ones who
0: believe
1: are the ones that are actually going to enter into the gates of heaven, where even though the rest, it had been done because they didn't believe they weren't saved. For God to loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes. So, the key is believing. So, now, let's bring this over to the realm of grace. We in the body of Christ. I mean, God says to us, pursue. He doesn't say casually stroll after. He says pursue, which means chase after with the intent to apprehend, pursue holiness without which no man will see the Lord. Now, the question comes up with so many, how can I live holy? Because I tried and failed and Mm. tried and failed and tried and failed. So I became Miserable, tormented Christian, because I know God. I see this, 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 or I should say, I see this writing to pursue holiness. So at that point, I've got, I've got an option. I can come up with a grace message that said, all my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. It doesn't matter how you live because we're really, really weak human beings that are sinful natured, and we're going to sin. So if I can't resist the urge to go to bed with my girlfriend, it's okay. God understands. But grace has saved me. That is a one-dimensional view of grace, and we've totally removed the second dimension. The second dimension, yes, grace forgives our sins. Yes, it does. The second dimension is it empowers us to be able to live free from sin. So if I don't know that grace is God's empowerment, I can't believe what I don't know. So if 98% of the Christians in America don't know that grace is God's empowerment, that means 98% of the Christians in America are trying to live godly, holy, in their own ability. And you know what that produces? That produces extreme frustration. We can't live like Jesus without the grace of God, but yet we can't benefit from the grace of God unless we believe, because the Bible says we have access to this grace through faith. In so, Romans
0: 5 so, so, John, why is this left out of the popular teaching today? I see it all over the place about a wonderful concept called grace. Why is it left out?
1: Well, we, you know, the the, the leadership, many of the leaders in today's church were brought up under very, very stern church fathers who actually preached legalism mm-hmm. from a excuse me preached holiness from a very legalistic standpoint they would beat people up they were mean-spirited and so what happened is this generation does what we always do as humans is we swung the pendulum to the other side we had to find a message that would appeal to the masses and so many and i'm not saying all but many leaders started realizing if I come up with a grace message that is inclusive of everybody, even if they love their sin, then I can build a stronger following. And so these fathers were mean-spirited. They had—many of them had very small churches. But now what many leaders are thinking is, if I broaden the message and I don't talk about the aspect of holiness— then I will get people that will at least come and hear the Word of God, and eventually they might be changed. But yet, if you look at the way Paul ministered to people, I mean, you've got a guy named a king named Agrippa. Excuse me, I think his name was Agrippa. He was very wealthy. He was very interested in listening to Paul. Yet Paul, what he talked to him about was righteousness, judgment, and the judgment to come, and discipline, self-discipline. And it so convicted him that the man said, Paul, I can't hear any more of this. I don't want this.
0: If you look at feelings— but, but, but wait, wait You have to understand, this- John, that if someone uh, says that on television, that'll be the re- same reaction King Agrippa had. I don't want to look at this, and then they won't watch TV. I, I, I have to tell you— for me and my house, I don't care if I go off ministry. I could care less, but I do care if I compromise, and I'm never going to compromise. I mean, what am I working for? For self, if I compromise, what good is that?
1: You know, you know Sid, God gave me a vision, and as you and I both know, there are different levels of vision. There, there is an open vision, and there are spiritual visions. This was a spiritual vision. I saw it so clear in my spirit gave this to me in the early 1990s, and I saw a mass of people that had come to the gates of heaven. Behind me was the gates. Behind me was Jesus. I did not see either. God just let me see the faces on this sea of humanity. Every single one of these people called Jesus Christ their Lord. Every single one of these people were expecting him to say, enter in to the kingdom of God. What I heard from, come from behind me where the words depart from me. I don't know you, you who practice lawlessness. And what God let me see is God let me see the utter horror and shock that was on their faces, because they fully believed from what they were taught that they were going to heaven, when in reality they lived continuously in their sin, because leadership one reason leadership didn't help them confront them to get out of their sin.
0: Uh, speaking and of so leadership, did, speaking of leadership, not confronting them, it reminds me of the time you watch were watching TV and a popular husband and wife couple, uh, Christian pastors, uh, were asked a question. It had quite an impact on you. Uh, tell me about that.
1: Well, you know, this couple is very passionate about getting souls saved. However, what they need is they need to realize that we can't compromise true core biblical principles to be able to reach people. And so the question was brought up about living in immorality, and it was uh, actually—one of them made the statement, it is not our place to tell people how to live. Well—
0: if, is if, where, if if pastors don't declare and proclaim a moral compass, no wonder this world is topsy-turvy again.
1: Well, it's not just the world, it's the church, hmm. and that's why this calibration has to be brought back. You know, Sid, I was reading the book of Hebrews and, you know, doing my daily Bible reading, and I, I was just enjoying, I was reading Psalms and Hebrews, and i just finished Psalms, and I was turning my Bible over to Hebrews, and this just happened just in the last couple of weeks, and I heard the Holy Spirit say, read Revelations, and it was a little fun, because what happened was, a couple weeks before that, I heard the Lord say, read Revelations, and I read chapters one and two, and stopped, and went back to Hebrews. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I thought, okay, so I go to Revelations, I pick up, And I start reading on chapter 3 where Jesus is speaking to the church. Now, Sid, here's the situation. These are seven historic churches and Jesus is talking to them. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the way Jesus preached, it was to the Jews of the Old Testament. They weren't under New Testament times. Paul got that real revelation. I'm like, okay, what does Jesus say to the church today? Well, here's the thing. That's seven historic Asian churches, but Jesus, but the God would never put those seven prophetic words in the Bible if it didn't have prophetic application. In other words, those words apply to us today. But Jesus says to this church at Sardis, he says, you have a name that says you're alive. Now, I want you to think about that. You have a reputation that says you're alive. What's going to give a church a reputation of being alive? They're growing. They're popular. People are excited about the services. He said, but in reality, you're dead. (laughs) Now, here's Jesus speaking to a church, and it's not just a historic church. It's prophetically to the church today. He says, you have a name. You have a reputation that says you're alive, but you're really dead. Here's the truth. You're dead. And he says this to them, return to what you first believed. And then he starts talking about their clothing being stained. If we look at clothing, clothing always represents our acts, our works. Paul said, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the clothing of our flesh and the clothing of our spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If you look at Acts or you look at Revelations, the white clothing of God's people was the righteous acts of the saints. But Jesus says, "Them, your clothing is soiled. It's stained. It's stained with the world." And then Jesus makes the state to, statement to that church in Sardis. He says, "Hey, go back to what you first believed." Well, Sid, all through the church, all through the church history, holiness has been a major issue for the church. Yet. We're not hearing it talked about. Why? Because holiness calls us to accountability. And there are many that say this, Sid. They say we have, we were made holy the moment we got saved. That's true. Ephesians chapter one makes it clear that God put us in Christ and set us apart, and made us holy unto himself. That's our positional holiness. But the Bible also speaks about our behavioral holiness because Peter says, be holy in everything you do. He does not talk about position. He's talking about our lifestyle, our conduct, our behavior. So when Lisa and I got married, Sid, she and I were one. We were married. And today, she's just as married to me as the day we got married. However, when we got married, there was behavioral patterns that changed in Lisa that lined up with our covenant of being married she stopped flirting with boys. She erased all the boys' phone numbers on her phone. She basically said, now I'm going to have the behavior that accompanies this covenant that I made. The behavior that accompanies the covenant of the free gift of salvation that's given to us by grace is holy living, but yet it's not a legalistic. It's a healthy, holy living that opens us up to God in a way in which many people are missing
0: out today. Uh, you know, I'm. Remi- you were quoting Revelation, John, and I'm reminded in Revelation uh, a line that um, I think has to be repeated, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, in the Greek it says this, if you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. Well, that should be a scary statement for most churchgoers today. Uh, Tell me a bit about the presence of God connected with this. You talk in your book about uh, Moses saying, I will not go up this mountain unless your presence goes with me.
1: Well, the question all of us have to ask ourselves is what is our internal GPS set on? And I look at, you know, my GPS on my phone, on my iPhone, I use it all the time. If I land in a city, you know, and I want to go to Whole Foods, my favorite store, I plug in the address of Whole Foods and it takes me right to the Whole Foods. Now, I'd be very frustrated if I plugged in what I thought was the address of Whole Foods and it took me to back to the airport. I'd be frustrated when I saw Terminal 1 instead of the Whole Foods sign. So the question I have to ask is what is our internal GPS is set on? In other words, what desire outweighs all other desires? Paul said it like this, I press toward the goal, the mark of the high calling of God. So there was, there was a mark, there was a goal that he was pressing towards. His internal GPS was set. And I look at a lot of people today and, you know, they don't have really their internal GPS firmly set. And I think we need to do that. If you look at some people, you know, it's really important to them that, that they have community, that they're socially acceptable, that they're successful they're healthy. But yet if you look at the rich young ruler, he had all of that, yet he still lacks something. There's people that want to be have a lot of friends. They want to have community. But you know what? You can have community and still end up like Aaron, Moses' brother, down at the foot of the mountain, the center of the community, but yet every day drawing people further from the heart of God. Your desires to be more noble. You may want to help the poor and help the needy. And you know what? I love that about this generation, Sid, This is a young generation that really wants to help the victims of social injustice. I mean, Messenger International, we're helping women get out of sex trafficking in three nations in Asia. People love that, and they partner with us. And I love that about this generation. But you know what? Paul said, I can give everything I have to the poor. And he said, and still be found wanting. If you look at some people, their biggest goal is to be the the biggest giver in their community. Well, Ananias and Sapphira gave a big gift, but yet look what happened with them. I look at my own personal life, Sid. I used to pray every day for an hour and a half. I would pray, God, use me to win multitudes of Jesus. God, use me to heal the sick. God, use me to win nations of Jesus. God, use me to help people get delivered. And i pray so passionately. And I did that for a year and a half. And one day God said, your prayers are off target. And I remember when he said that to me, I was like, what? I'm praying that you would use me to win nations to Jesus, to win souls? And you're saying I'm off target? And then the Lord said this to me. He said, Judas, cast out devils. Judas healed the sick. Judas led people into repentance. Judas is in hell. And I remember, I was a, I'm was a Catholic boy. I was an altar boy for eight years. I didn't get this, but I started trembling. I was quaking. And I said, God, what is, what is the, 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 what is the goal that I should be shooting for? What should my internal GPS be set on? And God showed me another man named Moses. He was prince of a nation. He had anything a man could want. He had any woman he could want. He had any toy he could want. He had servants his the second call, but he left all of it because he was after something. He didn't know fully what it was until he found it in a bush 40 years later on the backside of the desert. It was the presence of God. And that commitment to his presence would be tested later because God actually offered him the promised land. His popularity rating was at an all-time low. And God said to Moses, he said, Hey, go ahead. I'm going to increase your popularity with the people and you will have hundred percent approval rating. When you hear what I'm about to say to you, Moses, go get the people. I'm going to send a choice angel, go get the promised land, which you've waited for, for 400 years, but I'm not going. My presence is not going to go. And I am so glad that Moses answered correctly. Because Moses said, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't bring us up from here. Here was the desert, the place of lack, the place of affliction, the place of suffering, the place where they didn't have any variety of anything. And yet Moses, what he was saying is, God, if I have to choose, now listen carefully to these words that I'm saying, if I have to choose, I'd rather have your presence apart from your promises than to have your promises apart from your presence. I'm telling you, I believe God's heart was thrilled when Moses said that. God
0: I, did not I, I, I have to tell you, John. We have to take a break. However, okay, this okay. this is my what John is really speaking to me right now because this is my prayer, and I'm going to tell you what I pray in secret. I am desperate to get closer to God. I am yes. desperate for more and more of His presence. I want it seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and then I want more of than what I have those seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Everything else will follow. Are you desperate for his presence? I'm going to promise you something. One of the major end time traps of the devil is the whole area that John has been teaching on. He's a world-class teacher. The book is literally just off the press. It's called Good or God. And then it's on, uh, there's DVDs teaching by John and CDs It's six sessions and a special bonus CD. You see, John, after becoming a believer, was addicted to pornography. And he found out the supernatural way of getting set free and uh, the percentage of people trapped in pornography is so high. It is one of the hardest sins to be free of according to medical science, but easy for God. Now, one of the benefits of going through this course is your discernment for the last days will go sky high. That's what you want. That's what God wants for a gift of $74. And it really is an investment. When we come back, I want to talk about a subject no one talks about anymore. The fear of the Lord. What is that? Be right back. Call our order only line 1-800-447-2697. 447 2697 Hello, Sid Roth with Something More, my special guest, John Bevere, and uh, John, uh, we're talking about holiness, we're talking about uh, intimacy with God, uh, a lot of Christians are feeling guilty about their golf, about being a football or a baseball or a basketball fan, uh, would, would you help us on that?
1: Yeah, I think the easiest way to look at that is what, where is your heart in regard to these things? You know, I look at at when I married Lisa, I said, you're the girl for me for the rest of my life. Now, I used to date girls. I used to court girls. I used to uh, flirt with girls. I used to get their numbers. When I got married to Lisa, I stopped doing all of that. Now, does that mean that I would never, ever talk to another girl again. No, absolutely not. I sit next to them on airplanes sometimes. Sometimes they are the receptionist that is checking me in to, you know, a uh, a car rental agency. I talk to them as clerks in the grocery store. I talk to women all the time. I have more women than men on, on our staff. However, there's a certain way in which I relate to them now that is different than before I got married to Lisa. I look at some people and they take sledgehammers to their TV. they'll say, "I'll never watch a football game, I'll never watch this." You know to be honest with you, my question is, is why, why are you having to put these extreme prohi- prohibitions, or what, what prohibitions on yourself, rather than just saying, "I'm so in love with Jesus, this doesn't really hold my interest? and i remember you know talking to a lady who was she was a very attractive lady and this was before i got married and uh she was she was uh, she was talking about a friend of hers and this friend was an extremely attractive woman and she was married and these guys would kept flirting with her and she'd go well i'm married and they continue to flirt with her and she'd finally look at him and go i love my husband i really love him and she said that was the only thing that got men to stop going after her. <clears throat> well, the thing is, when you really fall in love with Jesus, all these other things like football, baseball, shopping, all these other things that are attractive and the world feeds off of and lives on becomes less and less attractive to us. And so, you know, just as I didn't like— uh separate myself from every single woman on the planet once I got married. No, I still interact with women. I still have to live in this earth. Even so when a believer comes to know Jesus, we should be so in love with Jesus and now our posture, the way we in the way we uh, participate in the things the world does changes and looks like a different picture than when it was than before we were saved. Does that make sense, Sid?
0: Although it makes sense Uh, I like sports. I use that to unwind. In fact, the more boring game I can find, the better off I like it uh, before I go to sleep. Am I wrong?
1: No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I uh, I just came back from Australia, and I was speaking down there in New Zealand, and I was having trouble getting to sleep one night in my hotel room. What I did is I put on golf. You know, I like to play golf, but, man, that put me to sleep so fast.
0: (laughs) Uh, Okay, John, our time is slipping away. Uh, have, Have we lost a healthy fear of God?
1: Well, you know, Sid, it's interesting you bring that up. I've had literally people argue with me, hey, God's not given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit of love and power and a sound mind. And I realize that they are confusing the spirit of fear with the genuine fear of the Lord. If you look at the fear of the Lord, it's mentioned all over the New Testament. I mean, we cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. The Bible says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So these people have either conveniently cut these scriptures out of their Bible, or they are just really blind to them. The fear of the Lord is not to be scared of God. A better way of describing it, it is to be terrified to be away from him. If you look at Moses, when God came down to the people, Moses said to the people in Exodus 20, 20, he said, do not fear. Okay, so that's the spirit of fear right there. He said, because God's come to test you. What's the test? That his fear might be in you so that you may not sin. So Paul, Moses differentiates. He talks about two different fears there. He talks about being scared of God. The person who's scared of God is something to hide. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does Adam do? As soon as he sins, he hides from the presence of the Lord. The person who fears God has nothing to hide. He's terrified or she's terrified to be away from God. And with that, because God is so magnificently awesome, there is a healthy trembling that comes. If you look at Isaiah, Isaiah was a godly man. He preached woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to the proud. Woe to the drunkard in Isaiah 3, 4, and 5, or excuse me, Isaiah 4 and 5, but then he comes to Isaiah 6, and he has one glimpse of God in his glory, and his greatness, and he's not saying, woe is the drunkard anymore, he's saying, woe is me, because for the first time in his entire life, even though he was a preacher of righteousness, even though he was a godly man, he realized who this awesome being was that he served. If you look at John, John was a friend of Jesus. He even put his head on his chest, but yet when John saw Jesus in his greatness, on the island of Patmos, he fell down like a dead man, and Jesus had to say to him, don't fear. He was saying, don't be scared of me. You have a healthy fear of me, but don't be scared of me. And so the fact that we are not preaching the fear of the Lord is a big factor of why the church has become so worldly, because I look at the love of God, and the love of God keeps us from legalism. There's two ditches on every side of the road, and the narrow road of life has two ditches. The first one is called legalism. You know, we were in a legalistic ditch back in the 50s and 60s. I mean, we're all about women wearing their hair up in a bun and no makeup and all that stuff. But a woman can wear her hair up in a bun, have no makeup, no jewelry, still have a seducing spirit up their eyeballs. That's not holiness. And so what happened was we were in this legalistic ditch, and we we had this charismatic move come, and we found out that our daddy loved us. I mean, Oral Roberts came out with a revelation, God is a good God. That was major and that love, the love of God, got us out of the ditch of legalism. But what we did is we went to the other side of the road and fell right. in the other ditch. That other ditch is called lawlessness. And God's given us another force that keeps us out of that ditch, and it's called the fear of the Lord. Because, but by the fear of the Lord, the Bible says one departs from sin. I remember when I met which, with a, with a famous evangelist who was in jail uh, for for committing crimes against the, the U.S. government, and he had read one of my books and asked that I'd come see him. And I remember. You know, he looked at me and he said, this prison wasn't God's judgment on my life. It was his mercy. He said, because if I would have kept living the way I was living, I would have ended up in hell forever. And I remember I was just awestruck by him saying that. And so when I got comfortable with him, I said, well, listen, I know you love Jesus passionately. I said, when did you fall out of love with him? And he said, I didn't. I said, what do you mean you committed adultery seven years before you even got sentenced for prison? I said, you went to prison for male fraud. What do you mean you loved him all the way through it? And I was mad at him, Sid. And he looked at me and he said, John, I didn't fear God. Hmm. He said, I love Jesus, but I didn't fear God. And he said, there's millions of Christians in America that are just like me. They love Jesus, but they don't fear God.
0: John, I want you to comment briefly. Uh, uh, a lot of people feel that biblical morality changes with the times. For instance, everyone lives together and is not getting married. Therefore, it's okay with God. What would you say?
1: Well, the Bible makes it very clear. The Bible is a timeless message. Our methods aren't timeless, but our message message is timeless. And the Bible makes it very clear that when you live with somebody, you're committing fornication because you're having sex with that person before you're married. And the Bible says that that is reserved for covenant relationship because it reflects Christ's relationship with his church. And so somebody that's living in fornication and says that they're serving Jesus, they're lying to themselves because they are literally disobeying a direct command that's all over the New Testament.
0: John, I would like... settle something right now. Uh, Earlier in uh, Something More, uh, we talked about the difference between the Lordship and Jesus just being our Savior. I want to nail it down for everyone watching us right now. Would you lead us in a prayer and really, really nail that down, that he is our Lord, not just our Savior?
1: Well, to everyone that's listening, I want to tell you something. God is so passionately in love with you. He loves you so much that he gave his son to die for you when you were still his enemy. And if he loves you that much, and you know what? And he's your creator. He is definitely worth listening to. But yet he makes it clear, if I'm going to have a relationship with you, it's going to be an authentic relationship. I'm not going to give myself completely to you, he says, and you give yourself to me and to the world. He wants a true relationship.
0: Uh, John, uh, John, let let me repeat that prayer after you when you pray it. And everyone watching us, you repeat that prayer with me.
1: Absolutely. So the only way that you can receive Jesus is by accepting his supreme authority in your life. And you can pray this prayer by saying this. Dear God in heaven.
0: Dear God in heaven. Forgive me. Forgive me.
1: For living life my way.
0: For living life my way.
1: Apart from you.
0: Apart from you.
1: My creator.
0: My creator.
1: But this day.
0: But this day. I give. I give.
1: My spirit, soul, and body.
0: My spirit, soul, and body.
1: Everything I am.
0: Everything I am.
1: Everything I have.
0: Everything I have.
1: To you, Jesus Christ.
0: To you, Jesus Christ.
1: Jesus, you are now my Lord.
0: Jesus, you are now my Lord.
1: My King. My King. The Supreme Authority in my life.
0: The Supreme Authority in my life.
1: And my Savior.
0: And my Savior.
1: And I will love and serve you all the days of my life.
0: And I will love and serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, John i cannot impress the necessity for people to get your brand new book and your six sessions of teaching uh it's on dvd form and cd form uh it is without a doubt when you grasp what john is speaking you will have your discernment peak to the point is necessary we're coming into times where I have friends that live in Israel, and when they were having the bombings of buses there, uh, they would pray before they would take a bus, and the Holy Spirit would say, don't take this bus, take this bus. That's the level of discernment you're going to have to have in the last days that we're we're living in. It's not a a self-help book. It's not a change of behavior book. It's a book to empower you to do all that God's called you to do, So we're making that available, plus the bonus CD on John had an addiction, after being a believer even, to pornography, and he found God's supernatural keys of being set free. We want to make that available to you for an investment of $74. Uh, John, last minute, give us a nugget.
1: Well, I just want to say this, that sometimes there are, you know, there are things that we need to do, we need to hear, that will save us. If you look at a guy, you can go to a doctor, and he can have a small tumor, and the doctor can say, you know what, you need to get that tumor, it's malignant, out of your body. We can fix this thing up. It'll take about a month. And then you look at a situation where this guy walks out, he's, he's frustrated, he doesn't have the month to give, and so he goes to a second doctor, and Dr. B looks at him and says, you know, this doctor's gone through all the medical journals, but he hasn't paid attention. He says, hey, you're fine. He gives him an uplifting message, a positive message. You're fine. It's just a small tumor. It's not going to hurt you. You're going to have a great life. So the guy comes out of Dr. B, and he's relieved. He's actually a little bit angry at Dr. A. But then two years later, that tumor now has grown into life-terminating size. It's invaded many of his organs of his body, and there's no cure now. Now the guy is thinking, I wish I would have listened to Dr. A. We need to have an appetite for the Word of God that will call us to the heart of God, not that will flatter us and tell us everything's okay when it's not okay. I would encourage every single one of you to get a hold of this and to study your Bible with this right next to it and make sure that your heart is calibrated properly for these last days.
0: Uh, John, we're not going to have time. Uh, to talk about how you were supernaturally set free from pornography. But I will tell you this, this bonus CD will show you step-by-step. Step. And the book, Good or God, and the six sessions on DVD and CD will prepare you. It's essential. John's a world-class teacher, and you serve a world-class God for a gift of $74. And it's really an investment. This is The set time to favor Zion. The set time to share the gospel with Jewish people. To place a credit card order for today's offer, call anytime at 1-800-447-2697. That's 1-800-447-2697. Or log on to our website at www.sidroth.org. To hear this week's interview or watch archives of our television show, It's Supernatural, visit our website at www.sidroth.org. That's www.sidroth.org. Discover how you can begin watching for free. Our 24-hour, 7-day-a-week TV network, ISN, the It's Supernatural Network. You can write me at Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278. That's Sid Roth, Post Office Box 39222, Charlotte, North Carolina, 28278.